Five pounds can't buy you love. It can barely buy you two copies of The Guardian these days, but it can buy you the satisfaction of supporting Spiked's free and fearless journalism. The best way to support Spiked and the work that we do here is to donate to us monthly, and a regular donation of just £5 each month can have a huge impact on our work, allowing us to plan for the future and for bigger and better things. So if you like this podcast, if you like what we write every week, please do consider becoming a member of the £5 per month club. Just go to spiked-online.com and click on the big red button in the top right corner to sign up. Thanks for your support, and now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me this week we have Spiked's deputy editor Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up, the Democratic primary, Priti Patel and International Women's Day. I'm delighted to endorse and support Joe Biden for president. I see Mini Mike just got out and he's going to, you know, try and save face by putting some money into Biden's campaign. If you are tired of the extremes and I think you know you have a home with Joe Biden. Former Vice President Joe Biden has now taken a small lead in the Democratic primary. Last Saturday, he surged to victory in South Carolina And on Super Tuesday, he topped the polls in 10 states, including states in which Bernie Sanders was expected to coast to victory, like Texas. It was a remarkable turnaround for Biden, who just a few weeks ago had finished fourth in Iowa and fifth in New Hampshire. The reversal of fortunes was no doubt helped by other moderates like Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar dropping out of the race. Since Super Tuesday, Mike Bloomberg and Elizabeth Warren have also dropped out, clearing the path for a race between Biden and Sanders. Tom, what are your thoughts? Well, it was another remarkable result, you know, and just another example, I think, of how fluid this particular race is, as well mm. as how unpredictable the electorate and how willing they are to kind of deliver an upset to to the pundits and to the media more broadly. Because, you know, going into this, obviously there was Biden's win in South Carolina, which was a huge boost to him, really bolstered his message that he's been trying to maintain throughout this campaign, which is that he has this lock on particular groups of key supporters, you know, particularly African-American voters, moderates and in Super Tuesday, also demonstrating that kind of more kind of white suburban voters would also form behind him, kind of rebuilding that kind of Obama coalition. That's mm-hmm. always very much been his pitch. Definitely disappointing for Bernie Sanders. I think he's really tested, and Sean Collins made this point um, in his Spikes piece this week, insofar as Bernie is trying to kind of have this kind of populist momentum, this idea that he's bringing new people into politics, younger voters, working class voters, that he was kind of staging some sort of political revolution. And while it's definitely clear that he has a very um, strong and enthusiastic base and that mm-hmm. he is kind of doing politics in a way that the rest of the candidates aren't, his political revolution keeps kind of failing to show up necessarily at the polls in the way that it should. And that seemed to really cost him. Now it seems that the more quote unquote kind of moderate voters are finally coalescing around one candidate in the form of Joe Biden, kind of South Carolina being that signal sent that he is the one that you want to back if you don't want a Sanders nomination. So it's really interesting. Still loads to play for, of course. Um, but I think the one argument that was kind of going on in relation to the Democratic Party is now going to come much more to the fore, which is to beat Trump, do you need to almost have an alternative sort of populist kind of insurgent energy? Um, is Sanders necessarily even the right person to do that, given his shortcomings, mm. which Sean talks about a bit on Spike this week? Or is the way to do this about basically kind of bringing politics back to normal, bringing things back to respectability, which is very much kind of Biden and Co's argument in all of this. So it's fascinating to see where it goes next. I mean, it says something about the race and, and something about the past few years, in fact, that the establishment candidate doing well in the elections is now considered an, ups- an mm. upset and something that absolutely nobody predicted. And, you know, 
even a few days ago, Sanders was expected to do much better than, than he has in the end. And I think you're right. You know, the, the appeal of, of, of Biden stems from this desire from many Democrats to just go back to normal, to sort of turn back the clock to a time before 2016. Whereas maybe we would be more in favor of pushing the populist kind of vote forward, whether that's through Bernie Sanders or through Trump or, or any other figure. I am disappointed that, you know, the, the kind of moderates uh, seem to be on top uh, in, in this particular race. I mean, Ella, what are your thoughts? It's interesting that even though there are these upsets and it seems like this is a new situation, it's also important to remember that with Sanders versus Biden, you're essentially back in 2016, which is yeah. an establishment figure in the form of Biden versus the sort of outsider in, in the form of Sanders. And that didn't go so well for the Democrats. And there's speculation that if... Biden wins, then Sanders' hardcore voters will sit it out in the same mm. way that they did last time, and that will enable Trump to get in. But I think the interesting thing is that, you know, whereas Hillary Clinton, at least to a certain degree, had something going for her, she was coherent to a certain degree. I mean, Biden just isn't. I mean, he can at times barely string a sentence together. There was an article in The Guardian talking about the fact that they're two white male septuagenarians and, you know, (laughs) while you might take some issue with that kind of blanketing view of them, it is true that Biden is not inspiring any kind of the normal sense. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't win over young voters. He gets his sister and his wife mixed up on podiums. (laughs) It's all a bit embarrassing. And you think, is this really, it's not only turning back, but it seems like just defaulting on not only the safe option but just anything but Sanders and I'll share your disappointment I don't have a huge amount of love or belief in the ability of Sanders to turn American politics around or be the new left hope or any of these things but Jesus he's better than Biden because it's just that kind of even the symbolism of something new something a bit challenging to the kind of staleness of American politics in general. I mean, for me, the interesting thing recently that's just happened is the dropping out of Elizabeth Warren. Yeah. Because I remember at the start of the campaign, there was this discussion about the fact that it was a new realm of American politics for Democrats. There was, you know, Elizabeth Warren pushing forward as not the Hillary candidate she kept insisting, but as the genuine, you know, representation of new politics, women in politics. And she's very sharp elbowed and she's got a sharp tongue on her and but she's completely failed and the reason why she's failed is an interesting one is because actually most people aren't thinking along the lines of identity politics they're thinking that she wasn't quite left enough for the Sanders voters and she's a bit too far away from the moderate sense of Biden so she was stuck between a rock and a hard place and hasn't managed to gain the support that she needed. I mean, she did had some success in knocking Bloomberg out with the kind of the focus on that hammering she gave him on the subject of NDAs. But, you know, she is not what Democrats seem to want at the moment, which is either some kind of radical upset in the form of Sanders or populist upset mm. or the safety of Biden. Yeah. And I'm quite glad that her whole spiel of, oh, we need a woman, we need um, change, we need to focus on, you know, the trans issues, all of that has been washed away to a certain degree. Yeah. Just quickly on Sanders as well, because I think this question about um, 
him in particular is an interesting one. Now, you know, who wins in a head-to-head against Trump? Now, it's fair to say that in recent weeks, you know, a lot of the polls seem to suggest that Sanders would fare slightly better than Biden in some areas now that there's been this surge. Maybe that's a different picture. But I think if you're looking at it in terms of like what is really going to kind of push forward a, a new kind of politics or a change in politics, I think it's fair to say at this point that Bernie Sanders was a kind of incredibly imperfect and incredibly flawed attempt to do that. Mm. I think there were, and I've wrote a piece of kind of a qualified praise of him in the past week or so, talking about a lot of this, which is that he does have a lot of genuinely quite good qualities insofar as he is at least interested in trying to kind of channel this populist energy. He's not necessarily anti-woke, but he obviously kind of bristles against a lot of that kind of politicking. You know, if, mm. if he's ever asked a question that relates to a particular identity group, he has a tendency to just kind of pivot towards how his policies will help everyone whilst Elizabeth Warren or anyone else will go into this kind of identitarian wittering instantly. Mm. I think that's quite a good thing. But at the same time, and Sean Collins wrote a very strong piece about this two weeks ago in relation to the fracking issue in particular, but on some other points as well. He does try to have his cake and eat it on a lot of these issues. His call for a ban on fracking being one thing, despite the fact it's actually been very good for bringing down the US's CO2 emissions. It's something that he wants to stop, which won't go down well in a lot of the areas where a lot of jobs rely on fracking and where a lot of people he'd be looking to gain support from, even on the identity politics issue. You know, he does kind of bristle against this stuff, but some of his most prominent surrogates are the Ilhan Omars and the Alexandria Casio-Cortezes, who are some of the most woke people in American public life, full stop. So, you know, I think two things could be right at the same time in relation to Sanders was that he was the only one who would not make this contest a battle between Trump's populism versus a Democrat's anti-populism. But at the same time, he was always a very kind of imperfect vessel for all of that. And I think that's probably part of the reason we're seeing him, his campaign hit that kind of a ceiling in some respect. Um, one thing before we move on, we should talk about is, is Mike Bloomberg, because mm. again, another kind of obsession of the pundit class was, was Bloomberg's kind of late entry into the race. He spent, you know, over $600 million on advertising and actually was, you know, doing pretty well in the polls, it seems, until Super Tuesday, the first time that, that the actual voters were able to express their view on him. <laughs> Tom, you, you've written about Bloomberg's failure. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Well, I think it's quite interesting. I think the Bloomberg flop, as it were, just perfectly demonstrates that this idea that we've heard a lot in recent years, that um, voters are very easily swayed by you know a lot of advertising online or on TV or slick political campaigning, is just not true. You know, He mounted a pretty unprecedented presidential bid. It was the most expensive of all time, even though mm. it only lasted a few months. Um, he spent something like $600 million dollars, all of his own money, and he got nowhere. So in the end, the only place that Bloomberg ended up actually coming top was in the tiny territory of American Samoa. And Mm. those people don't even vote in the general election. So it's just, (laughs) it's kind of hilarious. You know, the schadenfreude is slightly blunted by the fact that this is like a 1% of his actual net worth, but definitely explodes that idea that we've seen so often, which is that voters are easily swayed. And if there's some dark forces, some dodgy money flowing around, you know, going into Facebook's coffers to push out memes or advertising or whatever, then it's going to be a lock for whoever it is channeling that money on that particular side. I thought one particular um, statistic I thought was quite interesting was I think Bloomberg spent something like 60 million on Facebook ads alone yeah. in the course of his campaign so far, again, far eclipsing any of, of his rivals. And yet the amount that people reckon um, Russians spent trying to influence the election on Facebook was $100,000. Um, yeah. And as we've been told so far, that actually delivered the election for Donald Trump. So of course, money matters in politics. It matters a lot more than it should. And, you know, talking about the relationship between politicians and donors and all the rest of it is something that should always be discussed and scrutinised. But the same time, this idea that people are just so easily led by the biggest campaign, the slickest campaign, the one with the most amount of money, the one pushing its messages, its honed, you know, data-driven messages most effectively, I think has been, yeah, completely exploded by 
how much that just kind of crashed against reality on Super Tuesday, it felt like. One of the fun facts about Bloomberg is he engaged this company called Fuck Jerry, who make memes as their kind of main business venture. So, you know, a lot of the time when you see memes on going around Instagram in particular, you think, oh, they're harmless. They're, you know, they, well, they are harmless, but they're made by kids or whatever. Actually, there are agencies that make memes. Oh, That's God. the kind of dystopian world we live in. <laughs> and Bloomberg was was paying them. But clearly, as you said, Tom, mm. not enough to sway the youth vote. <laughs> not enough to sway anyone. He also paid off Instagram influencers to put out his memes <laughs> well, and his campaign <laughs> messages as well, which I thought was quite funny. Hello. Perhaps part of that problem is that that particular cohort that he's trying to reach through Instagram or um, Facebook is like the youth brigade mm. is among the Democrats anyway, the, as the polls show, pretty solidly behind Sanders. Yeah. Because, And I think it's quite a positive thing in terms of the, when you're talking about how, you know, millennials vote or there's usually generalizations about how young people, well, where their politics are and the great fact that they haven't been bought and that they're actually, with all of Sanders' flaws, behind a more principled politician than mm. Bloomberg is something to be celebrated. I mean, I just wanted to talk about one thing that I read that I thought was hilarious and quite important, actually, is that as this fight between Sanders and Biden continues and gets nastier, it's interesting to see who comes out on which side. And it was obvious that Hillary was going to be anti-Sanders because mm. of their history. But in this Hulu documentary in America, she was interviewed and she was very bitter. And she said about Sanders, nobody likes him and nobody wants to work with him. <laughs> and that teamed with Biden's support now for the the former candidates like Mayor Pete mm. um, means that you've got this sense of not just Biden as the establishment, but everyone going behind the safe pair of hands. And I think the more that people like Clinton come out and say, oh, everyone hates Sanders, hopefully the more likely it is that people will start to be suspicious of this idea of everyone aligning with the safe pair of hands, as it were. And I was thinking about, you know, it, it's difficult to compare US and UK politics, but isn't it interesting that on both sides of the pond, there's this thing happening, you know, the Labour Party, the mm. desire to go with the safe pair of hands of Keir Starmer. In America, the fear of Trump is pushing people into the so-called safe pair of hands, shaky hands, of uh, Joe Biden. Wandering hands. <laughs> and it's a, you know, this is reminds you of the broader point that the fear of populism, the fear of political change, mm. of disruption, is something that the establishment coalesces around. And that's what's happening in the Democrat candidate race at the moment. It's what's happening over here in the UK with the Labour Party. And like you said, Fraser, it's something to react against because one thing we can't do is go back to business as usual, safe politics. You're listening to The Spiked Podcast. Spiked has no subscriptions and no paywalls. All of our content is free. We rely on the generosity of our listeners and readers to keep us going and growing. For those of you who already donate to Spiked, we can't thank you enough. It really means a lot to the team. If you haven't already, then why not consider giving Spiked a donation? You can make a one-off payment or give monthly by going to spiked-online.com. Home Secretary Priti Patel faces multiple accusations of bullying. At the weekend, the Home Office's highest ranking civil servant, Sir Philip Rutnam, resigned and announced that he would sue the government for constructive dismissal. Rutnam said he had been the target of a vicious and orchestrated campaign against him. He accused Patel of swearing, belittling people and making unreasonable and repeated demands. 
Other allegations of bullying have emerged from Patel's time at the Department for Work and Pensions several years ago and at the Department for International Development. The Cabinet Office is investigating the claims. Tom, is this row really about bullying? No, not at all. I mean, obviously, we don't know the facts of the matter. There's an investigation going on. There's, as you say, there's some allegations which will need to be answered to. But it's very clear that this isn't about the question of bullying, not least because, you know, so many people in the Labour Party were currently denouncing Priti Patel um, were pretty upfront in the fact that despite the bullying allegations against John Burko, they didn't care about that because he was on their side in all the political wranglings over Brexit in Parliament. Mm. So we know that this is a bunch of nonsense, but it has thrown up a whole range of kind of interesting aspects that we could we could talk about here. One of which is the tendency to just sort of see the civil service as kind of angel-like, entirely blameless in all situations. The yeah. outpouring of affection for Rutnam amongst a lot of people who'd obviously never met him um, or worked with him even necessarily afterwards was really quite striking. They do kind of try and counterpose this kind of perfectly neutral, always right civil service against this kind of horrible populist ideological government that we've got, Priti Patel being a kind of embodiment of that at the Home Office. In the kind of a lot of the discussion of it, it's, it was been quite clear that there's obviously always a tension between what an elected government, particularly one which is trying to do certain radical things in certain areas, mm. and the civil service, which is going to have a certain level of groupthink, is going to have a certain level of resistance. And people almost don't try to deny this. You know, yeah. there was a piece in um, BuzzFeed, I think it was today, recording this on Thursday, talking about how a lot of people are angry at the head of the civil service Sir Mark Sedwill, because he's effectively allowing Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings to do quite whatever they want. Now, you would think that in a democracy <laughs> that, of course, an elected government and their hand-picked advisors would be allowed to do what they want. But nevertheless, it's quite clear that this has been a problem. And also, just as you know, more of the reporting has come out, there's clearly two sides to this story. There was a piece in the Huffington Post quoting an anonymous source, a former government advisor, who on the one hand was really having a go at Priti Patel, obviously didn't like her, was calling her stupid and all the rest of it. But at the same time was saying he didn't know anyone who had a nice thing to say about Rutnam and he did have a reputation for just randomly obstructing stuff. Mm. So it's just quite clear that this has just played into a kind of pro-government and anti-government line. But I do find it quite striking that in terms of people on the left and the Labour Party's defence of the civil service, that we are seeing the continuation of a trend that we've seen from before the election, but certainly since then, of them just feeling like the conservative force in all of this. Yeah the ones who are sticking up for the um, unelected civil service, the people who are sticking up for the people obstructing an agenda and a government put there by voters, people who are, again, making these kinds of appeals to be obstructionist in this face. It, it's interesting how they're very naturally, Keir Starmer was certainly to the fore in all of this, taking on that role as mm. one that are there to kind of um, calm things down. And I think that's an interesting sort of aspect to all of this as well. I mean, Tom, you yourself um, put out some words of praise <laughs> on Twitter about Sir Philip Ruttman. Do you want to tell her? Everyone believed it as well. <laughs> <laughs> what, did, what did you say? <laughs> this was really weird. So at the, on the on the day of his announcement, when he gave that little press conference with that mm. disembodied hand holding the umbrella over it, <laughs> there was this kind of outpouring of affection for him on social media, which I f thought was quite funny. Because um, no one had even heard of him until then, no, I presume. No, no one had even heard of him. And there was a lot of it from people who had worked with him or whatever, and, you know, saying I worked with him and he was brilliant and wonderful and all the rest of it. So, I, you know, just as a bit of a joke, I said that I'd worked with him for 40 years, which obviously I'm 28 years old. It's not true. <laughs> that he was brilliant, neutral, intelligent, intelligent, but also just to signal that it was a joke, that he was also loving and that no one could resist his charm. So I thought this was kind of obvious that this was a bit of a piss take. But loads of people took it seriously, funnily enough, which I think mm. speaks a little bit to the rush to just turn this guy into Princess Diana, you yeah. know, rather than actually look at the facts. <laughs> Hugh Grant retweeted it, like mm. loads of these real big name remainers. It's to this day my most spread tweet. So just I think Didn't that's... BBC News try and get in touch with you? Someone claiming to be a BBC News producer did try and get in touch with me and say, do you want to come on? I'm not sure how real that was, but <laughs> that, that would have been funny. I should have gone 
on in full character. Yeah. See how that I mean, <laughs> and the remarkable thing is this guy was central to the whole dealings of the Windrush scandal. Mm, yeah. It's funny how if you claim bullying and maybe cry wolf is a, a bit unfair, but suddenly all your past wrongs just get whitewashed out of existence. Mm. And I was thinking about the, a lot of people have made this comparison. Do you remember back in February when Diane Abbott caused a massive stir because she tweeted about the, you know, the then allegations against John Burkow, um by David Leakey about, of bullying and throwing phones and swearing and all that kind of thing. Yeah. And Diane Abbott tweeted saying, oh, you know, Lieutenant General, who's, you know, active in Germany and Northern Ireland and Bosnia, you know, bullied by Burkow, unlikely. Yeah. And there was so much fuss about it. And she deleted the tweet and had to apologise. And, you know, at the same time now, when it comes to Pretty Patel, she's calling for her to be, to stand down, mm. investigated, saying this is abhorrent. And it's, you know, what's the difference? It's that she doesn't like Pretty and she does like John. Yeah. Um, and that inconsistency is, is quite staggering. But uh, as it happens, I actually think that Abbott was right in the first instance. Yes, that, definitely. No, bullying, it, this isn't bullying. Well, who knows? But to me, it sounds like the particular relationship especially with the Home Office and the government, is a fractious one. It's high politics, big uh, decisions being made. Very dysfunctional department as well, yeah. famously, yeah. A real mess. And I think anyone that goes into that line of work in that department knows that relationships aren't exactly smooth. And as adults, you're sort of prepared for that. And I think particularly as lieutenant generals or men of a certain age, like Philip Rutnam, yeah. you might think that they have the dignity and the pride to not go crying about bullying afterwards. So I actually would think that Abbott shouldn't have deleted that tweet. She should have stuck to her guns. But the other thing, and this is actually more serious, and Brendan O'Neill's written about this on Spiked, is the question of why this is happening to Pretty Patel. Mm. And a disclaimer, I think, that she's not a great politician. I don't like her views on immigration. I would disagree with her till the cows come home. But it is interesting that the same protections that the quote-unquote woke left give to women of colour don't yeah. apply to mm. Priti Patel. You know, she back in um, October last year when Andrew Marr said, oh, I don't know why you're laughing when she was just sort of nervously smiling on air, wasn't picked up, even though, you know, people would have absolutely gone mad about that if it was Diane Abbott or another woman of colour. Yeah. There's no defence of her as a woman getting, you know, a huge amount of media scrutiny and everyone's essentially bitching about her on air every chance they can get. There was a cartoon of her drawn this week in which she is a disfigured bull, mm. you know, and I thought that we weren't depicting people of colour <laughs> as animals any longer, but that just doesn't apply. And that's not to say that you shouldn't be able to criticise politicians if they are women of colour, but it's to say, come on, where the, this inconsistency is because she's a Tory, it's because she's a particularly sharp or nasty Tory, if you want to put it that way. But I think the thing that's interesting is why isn't she afforded the same protections as other people of her ethnicity or gender? Well, I think I think that's true. And and the fact is that a lot of the, you know, criticism has taken on a misogynistic and racist character. So, you know, AC Grayling, the 
great Remainer, obviously anti-racist to his core and, and you know, anti-sexist to his core, described her as a succubus, which is, you know, a kind of mm. mythological she-devil type mm. creature, which I don't think you'd normally get away with You're calling anyone else that. When Boris Johnson, you know, first announced that she was going to be in his cabinet and she was going to be the Home Secretary and Javid was going to be the Chancellor and suddenly you had, you know, kind of four British Asians in cabinet, then there was this kind of great outpouring of anger that Patel in particular was basically a white supremacist that she was turncoat of colour turncoat of colour one phrase that came out yeah Javid was depicted as a coconut Rishi Sunak now that he's replaced Javid as Chancellor is getting similar kinds of insults so it is interesting yeah that the usual kind of not just politically correct protections but the kind of niceties of politics that we should criticise people's ideas not you know who they are not their backgrounds melts away when it comes to British Asians in the Conservative Party. Yeah, when they don't toe the line. I think it's also yeah. just coming back to the question of this kind of culture war over the civil service that we've mm. kind of seen erupt. It's important to put all this stuff in perspective because looking at some of the coverage over the past week, you would think that the most scandalous thing that happened in the Home Office in recent years was the fact that Pretty Patel might have been throwing her weight around and calling people fucking useless, you know. And again, as the point <laughs> Ella makes about the Windrush scandal is really, really important. Amelia, mm. gentleman of The Guardian, who's a person who broke all of those stories about the Windrush scandal, the fact that the Home Office under the hostile environment policy was effectively deporting black Britons to places they hadn't been since they were children on ridiculous grounds. She made the point that, you know, not only was Rutland presiding over the Home Office and the hostile environment at the time of the Windrush scandal, but also when he was called before select committees to account to himself, he seemed genuinely almost bemused at the things that had taken place. It, the, the very best you could say about him is that he didn't have a grip on all of this stuff. And a lot of the reporting since then, talking about his previous time in transport and other places, there's a lot of, a lot of criticisms that he should answer for. And it just mm. strikes me that in the kind of culture war over this government and how the civil service has been brought into this, you just get into a situation where all sense of proportion is kind of crowded out because Philip Rutnam is not the victim in this big story. And I think, mm. you know, whatever the rights and wrongs of this particular situation, I think it's important that we bear that in mind. You're listening to The Spiked Podcast. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher and more. And if your provider allows you to, why not give us a rating and a review while you're there? It really helps new listeners find the show. This Sunday marks International Women's Day. But have the words woman and women become outdated or even offensive? Earlier this week, Sefton Council in Merseyside flew flags outside two town halls with the dictionary definition of the word woman, that is, adult human female. But the flags were taken down when an LGBT campaigner called the definition a transphobic dog whistle. At Leicester University, students are celebrating International Women's Week, but the E in women has been spelt with an X, making it unpronounceable. The Edinburgh Science Festival has dropped the word woman entirely. A blurb for an event on women's periods described the female sex as people with uteruses. Ella, you're a proud Wimxen. What's going on here? Joanna Williams, who wrote the article, um, her column on Spiked this week about this particular nonsense issue of replacing women with Wimxen, and myself have time and again criticised the concept of International Women's Day because it's a nonsense day, because it, you know, it's usually about some kind of claptrap, you know, from the UN and women coming out and either crying or hugging each other. But if you're going to erase 
women and woman as a word and a concept, it starts to make me think that there might be some worth in an International Women's Day. Mm. If anything, just as a two fingers, how dare you try to do this to the small but vocal minority of nuts trans activists. Yeah. Uh, you know, at this point, if you are not allowed to use the word woman to describe women, there is a big problem going on. And the interesting thing is the, as Joanna points out in her article, the reason why that flag was taken down in Sefton Council, you know, the dictionary definition is being used by quote unquote TERFs, women who are critical of the whole um, transgender issue as a kind of a provocative thing. Mm. But to say it's a dog whistle, like refer to them as dogs, yeah. is problem in itself and the two people that complained to get that flag down were blokes mm. so essentially what you're you have is a situation in which two mm. blokes have cancelled international women's day representation of women in merseyside there's something really wrong going on there on a more general point international women's day is a nonsense and you know the theme this year is equal for equal and women are supposed to do this like weird hand sign and tweet <laughs> about it and it's <laughs> The same kind of stuff is all about how many CEOs are women and FTSE 500 and blah, blah, blah. But there are serious issues that women face in terms of their freedom, in terms of abortion rights, in terms of access to childcare, all these things. That is central to us being women. Mm. It doesn't happen to men. Men don't get pregnant. Men don't get periods. These are things that are facts. And if you start to erase women as a concept, as a being, then you basically pretend that these issues aren't real and aren't happening to half the population. And there's not very many words to describe that other than erasing women, which is, last time I checked, a misogynistic outlook. The, the double standardness is really interesting because mm. there's never been a discussion about MXN or something no. to this extent. And there's never been a discussion about men's spaces having to be, you know, opened up to transgender individuals. You know, it's interesting that it always seems to bear down on women. Now you could say that broadly speaking, at least up until this point, transgender people, it's often been male to female. Although I think there's evidence to suggest that amongst younger people, it's actually more often than not in the other direction. Yeah. Um, but it's still, it's interesting that this is always the kind of way in which the discussion is framed. I also think it's kind of interesting how many kind of contradictions there are in this ideology as well, because kind of WIMXN almost implies that there are different kinds of women that you therefore need to bring to together under one umbrella, yet the whole discussion about trans women are women, not mm. trans women, is, is also a part of this. So it doesn't really make much sense on its own terms. But I think it does speak to, as Ali was saying, that kind of underlying misogyny, the fact that it always seems to take this kind of form and the fact that the people who end up on the sharp end of um, trans activists, who, as we always say, distinct from transgender people themselves, the real ideologues in all of this, are always prominent women. Yeah. You know, I mean, there are loads of people who are, shall we say, gender critical who are men. They don't get nearly as much abuse as, mm. um, as, as women tend to. Um, the discussion around people being silenced on campus, that focus almost exclusively around female academics and feminists. The sorts of stories they have, whether it's Selena Todd being given you know, security detail to go to her lectures or Rosa Friedman at Reading being violently kind of threatened actually um, on her own campus by a male student. All of this kind of stuff, I think, really speaks to that kind of underlying aspect to it. So a lot of this is kind of silly and ridiculous and, you know, will strike a lot of people as very strange, but there is a very dark underside to a lot of this as well, which is always worth pointing to. That's absolutely true. It is, it is always aimed at women. And, you know, the manipulation of language is really striking. So not only do you have WIMXN, you know, people with uteruses. I've also seen examples of women referred to as womb bearers, which just sounds horribly, you know, old fashioned, old school kind of 
you know, misogyny, that that is the kind of value of a woman is that she, she has a womb. Non-prostate owners is how Teen Vogue describes women in its article about anal sex. A very article which went viral. I'd recommend you check it out. <laughs> <laughs> All kinds of stuff. We published um, a blog a few months ago about this, this guide, a trans guide to safe sex. And it was, it was fascinating that the word vagina, it was suggested that you don't actually use the word vagina to refer to an actual vagina, you know, owned by an actual woman, but instead you should use the word vagina to refer to a post-op trans woman's genitals. So an actual woman's vagina, it was suggested that you should use the word front hole as a replacement, which I, I, you know, I I don't want to be too squeamish about these things, but it does reek a little bit of misogyny. There is something a bit gross about, you know, <laughs> redefining women's genitals as a front hole while also, claiming the Can I just word. say, on a what? biological level, <laughs> the front hole is not the vagina. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, on that level... There's definitely a man who wrote that, though. Yeah. yeah, but, yeah. But again, why can't they all be called vagina? I don't understand. Yeah. Like, yeah. Anyway, sorry. No, it has to be, but, that's the thing. It has to be, you know, it's like the turfs, as they often disparagingly refer to, they have a point because it's almost as if trans women are better women or, you know, better exemplars of what it means to be female than actual living, breathing women. Mm. When I was thinking about this issue, I used to think, well, you know, yes, the so-called turfs are, you know, they go on about the danger of penises and the danger of men and, you know, they want their safe spaces and their women shortlist. And I don't really agree with them and I don't agree with the trans activists. And the more this goes on, I just think you have to genuinely pick a side like mm. Suzanne Moore and The Guardian did and say, mm. genuinely, enough is enough. If you have credible sensible, intelligent academics from Oxford University being banned from women conferences that they have been attending for years and not only banned, but tipexed out of programs simply mm. because they have a view that you should defend the idea of woman as a concept, then I mean, Christ, you know, this is dangerous territory. And the point you made about language Fraser is really interesting because it's propelled so quickly. As I remember not so long ago, we were having this discussion about cis women. So every yeah. woman was forced to say, no, you're a cis woman. And now actually you don't even have the word woman anymore. It's womaxen. So mm. you, it, yeah, it's, it's symbolic and it's real. We're actually being erased. And, you know, the broader point about this is most women are very open to the idea of trans women being able to define ha themselves how they like. Most women are not terrified of penises or men. Most mm. women are quite open to being, you know, generally liberal about identity and sex. But if you're going to force us into a corner and say that we have to swallow the ideology of a very small minority of people, you know, not all trans people, but these few trans activists, then you're going to have a backlash. And actually that backlash is quite important because, you know, I don't first of all identify myself as a woman but I am a woman mm. and that matters and it matters for different parts of my life. And, you know, if we actually believe in women's freedom, which is something that has not yet been fully gained, then you have to push back, pick a side and pick the side of fighting against the erasure of women from public discourse. You've been listening to The Spiked Podcast. For more Spike content, don't forget to keep visiting us at spiked-online.com, where you can also make a donation or treat yourself to something from our shop.